Um, good to see you all. Welcome to Calvary Chapel. If this is your first time here, God bless you. Glad you're with us. Um, it's a beautiful day out. As I was saying earlier, first service, uh, you know, I was looking, I said, you know, Lord bless us with this beautiful sun. Now it's time we put our focus on the sun, right? S-O-N, Jesus Christ, ever our everything. Please open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, if you need a Bible or you forgot your sword, please raise your hand and one of our ushers and elders will bring a Bible to you or a pastor. Somebody will get you a Bible. Does anybody need a Bible here? Everybody got their swords? Awesome. Awesome. All right. So 2 Corinthians chapter 7, we're going into really completing the last part of this section. Um, it's a beautiful section where Paul, through again, his transparency, he was saying, hey, open your heart. He was telling them that he was opening his heart. He's going to ask the Corinthians to open their heart to see just to be all things in transparency. It's beautiful that way. But we're going to see something that I know was heavy on Paul's heart because he's going to write about it. And he tells us that even Titus, his brother, that he had longed to, you know, back to chapter two when we had read about Titus and he was not there. So Paul continued on to Macedonia. He had been definitely looking forward meeting up with them to find out how are things going after the first letter that was written to the church of Corinth, right? Which we really know was the second letter. We, we call it 1 Corinthians, right? Just like 2 Corinthians is really, we know the fourth letter because we read in 2 Corinthians that he had written a letter of sorrow or something that was difficult that way. So as we look at this, let's bow our head, we'll pray and we'll begin. Father, we just thank you. Lord, speak to your people here this morning. Lord, we, we, we come here to hear you, to read your word. Thank you for blessing us with these 66 love letters. Every single jot and tittle, Lord, we know is for our instruction. Lord, I praise you that we have the word of God, that we can write our minds and get calibrated by just spending time with you, Lord. Renew our minds here, Lord, from this lost and dying world. Lord, let us, let us see how good and sweet. Let us taste how good you are, Lord Jesus. We pray this in your holy name, almighty God, Jesus Christ, and all God's people prayed. Amen. So something to note before you begin. Last week I went and I read chapter 7, verse 1. Now that might have seemed strange to you that I've sort of ended on that. Why, pastor, did you end on verse 1? But that's because verse 1 really belongs to chapter 6. Please remember, it wasn't until the 13th and 14th century that we got verses and or chapter breaks. And that was done by, you know, the bishop of, uh, I believe it was Canterbury, actually, that had put these chapter breaks in. Those are not inspired, right? We do understand the headings and the chapter and the verse numbers are not inspired. Every part of the Bible is certainly inspired, every jot and every tittle from the Lord, and it's good for correction, reproof, exhortation, and all of that. But it's important to understand that the chapters sometimes don't always line up in the exact thought, and I think this is a good example of that in chapter 7, because he goes, therefore, having the, these promises, if you were reading at the beginning of chapter 7, verse 1, what are you talking about, Paul? Therefore, what promises? No, you would go back, and clearly you would read in chapter 6 what he had already been talking about in verses 11 through really 14. O Corinthians... We have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. And what did he say? He said, do not be unevenly yoked, verse 14, together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness to do with lawlessness? Do you remember we talked about that? What he was saying is he was saying, come out from a part of that. Don't go back to Egypt. Don't go back to the flesh pots. Come out from a part of that. 
be holy, be separated. Now, he's not telling us to be separated like the Anabaptists necessarily, where we're to go out and, you know, have no contact with outside civilization. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that you're in the world, but not of the world, right? That our citizenship is heavenly, and we need to be heaven or eternal focused, not on the temporal. So he says, therefore, having these promises, what promises? The promises of God being wholly separate. Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Now, this isn't a fear of, uh, uh, I'm afraid of the Lord, but a reverential fear, a a genuine, heartfelt, reverential fear. I I want you to think about this for a minute. When you've taken God or your Lord Jesus Christ and you've placed him into that position of preeminence, number one in your heart and your life, whatever addiction you have, whatever struggles you may be going through, trials or tribulations, are you not able to overcome through Jesus? It doesn't mean that it's not difficult. I never said that, nor did the Word of God. But he's saying that basically when we put him in that preeminent position, we are victors. This isn't a faith and prosperity gospel, and this isn't a name it and claim it gospel. No, this is a gospel that says that the battle has already been won. Christ has paid it all. There's nothing more we can work to do to further that, right, other than the faithfulness. He called us to a gospel of what? Reconciliation. We read that last week. So this is what he's saying. This idea of fearing the Lord means putting God in that reverential place where he belongs. Anything between your soul and God is idolatry, isn't it? So now he begins to go and he talks with Corinth and he picks back up in verse two and he says, open your hearts to us. If you remember in verses 11 through 13, 13, he said, O Corinthians, we spoke openly to you. Our heart is wide open. You're not restricted by us, man. We didn't lay any legal trip on you, right? We've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one, he says in verse two. We have cheated no one. That word in the Greek, cheated there, is the word we use for defrauded today. It means something a little different than cheating when we think of cheating. To defraud something, it's the idea of an accounting or a financial connotation. Why would he be saying that to the church at Corinth? Because if you remember back to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, what were they to be gathering? A love offering that they were going to be bringing to the church in Jerusalem. Do you remember that? So he's saying, we didn't do anything to fleece sheep. We didn't do anything to defraud you. We we didn't turn around and wrong you in any one way. He says, I don't say this to condemn you, for I've said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together, he says. And I think that's beautiful. When we begin to understand what it is truly to be brothers and sisters in Christ, that we live together and die together. I mean, have you ever thought about it? Look around the room for a minute here. I said the same thing the first service. I said, look around. Go ahead. Nobody's going to slap you. It's all right. Look around the room for a minute, right? You guys are like, what? Does he mean really look? I mean, yes, look, please. Right? Look, look. You're going to spend eternity together. We're going to spend eternity together. Do you realize that? Brothers and sisters in Christ, believers, we're going to spend eternity. We should all get to know one another here, right? Invest in each other's lives, ministering to one another. That's what he's talking about. We, we're going to die together. We're going to live together that way. That's one of the sweet things about church here is that it's not just a place we come to get fed while that's important, but it's also a place we come to do our ministering. We don't just minister to unbelievers outside, but we minister within the church, building each other up. Sometimes we cry together. First service, 
We had, at the end of service, we had a prayer time afterwards for people to come up that needed anointing and prayer uh, because we had uh, one person come up with cancer. They just got a cancer diagnosis last week, uh, lost their job. We had another person come up with a, a precancerous uh, threat. And how great is that, that the body of Christ could gather in that first service together, holding hands, praying for that individual, letting them know they're loved and they're never going to go through any of this alone. This is what Paul's talking about. Church isn't just a place and a building. Church is the body of Christ. We together make the church. Because it's together that we'll be worshiping and praising God for eternity. That's what he's saying here, and it's beautiful. He's drawing them in this unity to understanding this. And he says, I don't, I don't say it to condemn you. Right? You're in our hearts, Pastor Paul says. Great is my boldness of speech towards you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation. How could Paul say this? Well, if you turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and you look at verse 3, what did he say here? He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercies, and God of all what? All comfort. God is the one doing the comforting here. And Paul recognizes that. He says, we're filled with comfort, even, even exceeding joy in this tribulation, the trials and difficulties, difficulties we go through. We can only do that because of the comfort we receive from God. Now, maybe there's somebody here this morning that's saying, I don't feel real comforted right now, Pastor. There's some difficult things that I've been going through. And maybe I haven't been openly talking about it with others. Maybe I've been struggling through it. But, but it's real to me, and I'm struggling with it. Well, have you asked God for comfort? Have you, have you talked to your brother or sister and asked them to pray with you? Right? Have you lifted holy hands to worship God in the midst, giving thanksgiving in the midst of the trial? These are all important things that God would draw our attention to. Paul began, and certainly through direct revelation, understood this. Now, verse 5. This should catch and jump out a little bit at you. For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts, and inside were fears. Wait a minute. How did we just jump into that? We were talking about the Corinthians in regard to repentance. You see, I didn't share this with you when we were going through it because I was a little bit um, concerned that this is called Paul's great digression. And I didn't want you to not pay attention through chapters 2 all the way through chapter 7, verse 5. But I'd like to turn your attention there now so you can see what Paul was doing. Please go back to chapter 2, and I'd like you to look at verse 13 with me, please. From chapter 2, verse 13, Paul goes into one of the greatest digressions in all of Scripture, where he literally goes, and maybe you can relate to Paul. He was receiving direct revelation from Jesus Christ. He had a mind, and, you know, the Lord was speaking to it, and, and all of a sudden he's like, yeah, he's thinking about, you know, Titus and, and not seeing him in Macedonia. And then the Lord, did you ever have the God do that? I love when he does that. He takes your mind in a different direction for, I don't know, a few minutes, or for Paul, apparently, five or three chapters, right? He takes his mind, and he begins to go through, and I want you just to think about what Paul did, this, this, this great digress, as it's called. I mean, look what he went through. He began to talk about the law versus the spirit, right? The letter, right? He called it the letter in chapter 3, and the glory of the new covenant, a covenant filled with grace. 
the light of Christ's gospel. He then turned around and said, yes, we may be, uh, you know, conquered or feeling like we're, sorry, unconquered or we're feeling like we're struck down, but we're not destroyed, he went on and said. And then he says, you know what? We have an assurance of the resurrection, right? These clothes, the, the, you know, the tent that we have, he pointed to the picture of the body, saying this, what, this mortality must put on immortality, right? And how we groaned and waited for that. And then we brought, brought to this beautiful passage in chapter 5 where we looked at the Bema seat, the judgment seat that awaits this beautiful, you know, judgment ceremony for you and I that we receive these crowns, right? This Bema seat judgment that we, we know we could do nothing good in ourselves. So what do we do? We cast, we cast the crowns right at the feet of Jesus Christ because he is worthy, isn't he? He's worthy of all praise and honor. And then we looked at the marks of ministry, right? In chapter six, he began showing this then verse three, we give no offense in anything that our ministry may not be blamed, right? Or with issue, right? And then we turned around and we read about what it is to be holy and to open our hearts and be transparent one to another, not holding back, not being fake, not playing church or Christian, but to truly open and invest in each other's hearts, to cleanse, to allow God to cleanse us and to cry together, to laugh together, to do all things that way. You know, it might be a great digression, but the word that he had as God took him off on this was so significant. Can you imagine if we didn't have the rest of chapter 3, 4, and 5, and 6, all that we learn about Christ, all that we learn about the mark of ministry, a ministry of what is it again? Reconciliation that we're to give through the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we are sent about in the Great Commission to reconcile people back to Jesus? Can you imagine if we didn't have this great digression? Well, I, just in case you're like, I don't know, Pastor, about this whole digression thing. I've never heard this book. Please go back with me to chapter 2, and will you read verse 13 with me? It'll make a lot of sense here in a minute. I had no rest in my spirit, please pay attention to that, because I did not find Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I departed to Macedonia. Now turn to chapter 7. Verse 5, for indeed, when we came to Macedonia, oh boy, that ties right nice, our bodies had no what? Rest. He just said that, didn't he? But we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts and inside were fears. He was saying that from the outside, there were battles over the gospel, right? Enemies of the gospel. And from the inside, there were the stresses of ministry. Ministry is stressful, isn't it? We're all in ministry. We're all called to ministry, right? Maybe not a senior pastor, a pastor of a church, an elder of a church that way, but, but we're all called to ministry in some capacity, right? We're given the great commandment and the great commission. We're ministers. We're a royal priesthood, 1 Peter 2, certainly. So because we're all called to the ministry, we, we understand the stress. There's, there's a general... You know, life is like a roller coaster, isn't it? It's got ups and downs, peaks and valleys, right? We all, you've been longer, you know, older, older than five years old, you figured that out. You didn't need me to tell you that here today, right? But ministry is interesting. Have you ever thought about it? Ministry is like a simmering pot. It's something that gets put on the burner, it's turned on, and it's always there. It's not as though there's times in ministry where it's like, wow, I just have no stress. And it's not like there's times in ministry where it's like, this is so overwhelming, I want to pull my hair out. Life may be that way, 
But truly not striving in ministry and being spirit-led should never be like that, right? When we're stepping and following in the presence of God, he's the one leading and we're following. We're simply, but it's a constant simmer, isn't it? Ministry is a constant simmer. It's what we tell younger minister pastors as they get ordained, get ready, you know, because you're used to the hunter and gathering kind of mentality. The, you know, projects at work are heavy. No, you know, things settle down. Projects get heavy again. Ministry is a constant, <laughs> enjoyable, but nonetheless constant level of stress. And that's what Paul is sort of talking about here. This inside were fears, right? Nevertheless, God, well, we can close our Bibles and go home right now. Right? Because you can pretty much fill in the blank anything after that. Nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you. That Titus, when he had come to you, Corinth, he was comforted by you by the time he met with you. When he told us of your earnest desire Look at this, your mourning. What happened in Corinth? Paul wrote a very sober letter, didn't he? We know it as 1 Corinthians. And it was a letter to address what? Sin, right? Divisiveness. I mean, we have a young man having sexual relations with his mother or stepmother. We're not really told which one. In chapter 5, sexual immorality... We have, in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, them suing each other. Brothers, we're talking believers in Christ doing this. These aren't unbelievers. These were the believers in Christ at Corinth, suing each other. Chapter 11, they're coming, and they're partaking of the, the feast of communion, and they're eating and filling themselves and gorging themselves and getting drunk before other people even get there. Not being considering to another brother that may not have much or a sister that may not have much food. And instead of saving some for them before the feast time, they would just eat it all, giving no desire. It's said by Paul that in 1 Corinthians that they were so well known by their sexual sin that Vegas had nothing on them. That that church, that church was known as a sexual immoral church. Equivocal to many of what would know as the temple prostitutes that were in Corinth already in the pagan practices of that day. I want you to think about that, that, that in that church, the son is having relations with his mother and mother, and the church is kind of like, well, I guess it's the time of the day. You know, it's the culture today. We should just accept it. We want to be politically correct. Everybody's doing it. And the church actually began to go, yeah. You know what? We shouldn't take a stand on these things. That's not being tolerant. That's not being loving. I know this is hard for you to relate to today because we know nothing of this today, right? And the church is doing the same thing, isn't it? Not you, maybe, but much of the church is. They've compromised. They've, they've said the means will justify the end. You know, they've, they've salted oats to get people to drink. They've tickled ears and, and no longer want to teach a doctrine of grace and love and, and perfect love because God's design is not to turn around and let you just ruminate in your sin and let it destroy you, but to draw you 
back to reconciliation where you have right relationship. That's God's desire for all of us, amen? That's what he wants. That's real love. That's real love. But we don't want to offend people. Hmm. You know, when a society becomes more worried about offending people than speaking truth, it is the fall of the culture and the society. Today, we are seeing very much what was alive 2,000 years ago in Corinth. We as a church get to decide how we'll respond. Will we mourn? Will there be a sadness in our heart for the way our Supreme Court tries to redefine marriage? Will there be a sadness in our heart the way the Supreme Court continues to honor murder and abortion? Will there be a mourning and a sadness in our heart when we turn around and we see young people, and quite honestly all different ages, being told that biologically they can relate to themselves as a he, even though they're the she and a she and a he, as though pronouns they teach in English and you better learn them in school or they'll flunk you. But when it comes to real life and practicality, if you don't use them politically correct, well, then you can be expelled from college because it's not, it's hate speech. Do you realize where we're going as a country, as a government? That we, the people, if we don't take a stand and say, for me and my house, I serve the Lord, as Peter and John said, for I can't answer these things, whether they be right, but unto God is who I serve. I'm not a man pleaser. No, I fear the Lord. As Paul said, I fear the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. My understanding, my view of the world is a biblical worldview. I have no opinion, idea, contrary to what the scriptures teach. And my Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ, has espoused and given to me to set my mind right, to be renewed and restored, not to be crippled by a world that desires to rip joy and hope but to leave you with despair. Our young people have suicide rates higher than any other time alive. It breaks my heart. I mourn. Your zeal for me, he says, so that I, I rejoiced even more. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, now this is, this is interesting, Paul has one of those moments, maybe you've had a moment like this, where he's like, I'm sorry, but I'm not really sorry, but I'm kind of sorry because I don't want it to come across too harsh, but you know what I mean. You know, he's having one of these moments because he's wrote the letter and he's like, look, I needed to be real and transparent because there's a sin issue and I can't compromise. But at the same time, I didn't want to destroy you in it. I wanted to build you up and call you to right relationship with God. Have you ever had that when you're maybe at a, at a meal with somebody, you invite them over to the house, or maybe they're good friends of yours, and, and, and they begin to, maybe they see some things differently, and they begin to talk about things, and, and they look at you, you know what I mean? And they look, you know what I mean? You know, and you're like, um, I do understand what you're saying, but I, I'm sorry, I, I, agree, I disagree. And they look at you with such disdain, like, and then they repeat it as though you didn't understand it, and they say it differently as though that's going to change your understanding or conclusion response. There's a difference between being sorry and there's a difference between being repentant. 
He says, for even if I made you sorry with my letter, I did not regret it, though I did regret it. What is he saying? He's not having a moment there. He's literally saying, look, I'm sorry only that maybe when you receive that, it might have cut, but I'm not sorry for standing in the gap with Jesus Christ. And that's why I related to you. And it's when you're at that meal and you're trying to say something and somebody's got a different understanding, you're, 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 you don't want to hurt that person. That's not your desire. But real love says that you must stand in that gap and say, well, this is what the Bible says. And this is the way we're to live our lives. And if we do this, it doesn't mean that everything's going to be perfect, by the way, and that no harm will ever befall us but we will always be in the hands of God. And no matter what happens, absent with the body and present with Jesus, with the Lord. So whom shall I fear? What a weight I just took off. I can breathe again. This is what he's talking about. For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. And that's what it does, doesn't it? Correction is hard and sorrow is hard for a while. But ultimately, when it corrects and it brings you back in the right relationship, you begin to bring thanksgiving. You're no longer sitting back and saying, oh, I wish I could do this. Or, man, remember the good old days when I was getting high and drunk? You're not looking back that way. Oh, look what I'm missing or I'm not missing. I could be going to this party or not that Because you know what? You know God's best is the best. And you've settled that in your heart. You know, it's it's not that it's easy, but it's right. It's, It's right. Now, I rejoice that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. This is what Paul, through Revelation, understands. And we should understand today. We need this instruction. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation. Underline that in your Bible. That is a biblical axiom and principle. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces what? Death. Do you see how he he clearly draws them as separate and distinct? Now, let, let me help explain this a little bit if you allow me. There's something called conviction, And there's something called condemnation, condemnation. Now, we receive conviction from the Holy Spirit, from God, in humility. And our right response, like Corinth in this particular place, is to do what? Ask for forgiveness, to repent, to be in right relationship. But then there's something called condemnation. And condemnation is where we begin to feel that same sorrow, because you feel sorrow in both but you feel sorry. What are you sorry about? Well, maybe sorry that you got caught. I don't know. Sorry that the the situation happened, but you're not repentant in that you want to turn away from the situation is not to repeat the same thing over and over again. Now, if if you'd allow me, I I can explain biblically these two camps, because there are two fundamental camps if you're taking notes. Um, Conviction happens to bring about certain attributes. Can I use the word feelings, although we know feelings betray us? When we're in the moment of sorrow, we're going to experience or feel something. To be able to determine which 
author is manipulating because here, here's the rub. According to scripture, the godly manner, sorrow in a godly manner, right? That would be defined as conviction. And the world, the flesh, and the devil is more than happy to conduct condemnation. Well, how do you know God doesn't do that sometimes? Well, because Romans 8.1 says, for there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. So God is certainly not going to contradict himself in Scripture. He would never do that. God never does that. Scripture does not contradict Scripture. So we know God is not the author of condemnation. So it's either the world, the flesh, or the devil. It's pretty simple. It's one of the three in those camps. Now, for conviction... There's some attributes that we look at. The first one is peaceful correction. What do I mean by that? We all feel that sorrow. But that sorrow draws us to God. You're either a run to God or run from God. If you feel the, the, the uh, how do I say this, the sensitivity in your heart to be running to God, that's a peaceful correction. If you feel this desire to run away from God, that's condemnation. Because certainly he's not going to use things to draw you away from him, would he? The second thing is love. Within conviction, you find true, unconditional, agape love. It's at the source of it because God is love. Comfort. We just read in 1 Corinthians, or sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, that God is comfort, and he brings comfort. Even in our sorrow, we begin to be comforted by God to do what? To repent and turn and be right in reconciliation with relationship. The, the next thing we begin to feel is rest, because he desires to give us what? His perfect rest and peace. Finally, because we're so broken and we're undone, in our weakness, he is made strong, we begin to see a strength that we in ourselves did not previously have. A strength that is supernatural, that didn't come from us, but a strength that comes from God. And finally, the last thing that we see within this camp of conviction that God will use that ultimately leads us to this very point is hope. Because no matter what happens, we begin to place our hope our trust on the eternal, not on the temporal of what we see here today. Because this is all fading away. It's all going to burn, man. But the eternal that awaits us, we're going to look at some passages here this morning in that. It's beautiful, man. It's awesome. All right, now let's look at condemnation. Yeah, we got to look at the boohoo camp, but we got to look at it, man. What are those and the attributes of condemnation? First one is guilt, different than the sorrow that you experience in conviction. This is not a peaceful correction. This is laden with guilt. You ever felt that way? I'm sure many of you have felt guilt. God doesn't work in guilt. God works through peaceful correction. He draws you to a place. He shows you. You repent, get restored and right. You have thanksgiving. It is beautiful. It is beautiful. Guilt destroys. Guilt causes you to run away from God. Guilt causes you to separate. You begin to hide. You take an amber. You move the amber from the flame. What happens to the amber? It goes out. 
You take the amber, you bring it back into the flame. What's it do? It ignites. Light the fire in me again, O Lord, we pray, right? That's where this comes from, this idea. Guilt. Well, what proceeds from guilt? Because after guilt, there's a natural following, and that's, that's a fear. I'm going to get caught. What do I do? I'm going to get caught. How do I act? Uh, you know, when you've been caught lying, and you have to further perpetuate that lie with more lies, it just builds. And then what comes after that? Anxiety. The physical attribute of what starts to come out of you, right? No longer is it just mentally something that you're wrestling with, but you begin to have physical manifestations of it, right? You get a stomach pain, right? Feeling, or some people get ulcers, or all types of things can happen. You could, you know, vomit. I mean, you get really sick because your anxiety can make you so unstable that you can't sit still. You just, all the time. And you know what happens after that? Because you're sick and you're just undone and you're running away from God, you begin to get bitter. Bitterness follows. You get angry. You get consumed. How dare you, God, tell me? As though you know the mind of God in all ways. Bitterness begins to just take over. You get bitter or better in life. Pick one. One road leads to condemnation, the other one's conviction, a holy conviction. Bitterness. And you know what bitterness eventually leads to? Because after you've blamed everyone else and you've got angry and pushed everybody away, when you're all alone, do you know what you begin to feel? Despair. You begin to despair. You start having suicidal thoughts. Does my life really matter? Am I supposed to be here? as though you weren't wonderfully and perfectly made in your mother's womb by God, as though just because of the shortcoming that you may be going through, God just tore up his plans for your life somehow. Absolutely not, and a lie from the pit of hell. We blow it. We blow it, don't we? We're not perfect. We haven't arrived. So why do we culminate in this moment as like our whole life depends on what just happened? As though it's going to set the forward trend? No. That's a lie from the enemy or the world or your own flesh. Pride. And it leads to terrible suicidal tendencies. And part of that is the loneliness. Loneliness is the other thing that, that ends up. You end up. Now, did you notice when you were condemned, you ended with despair? When you were convicted, you ended with what? Hope. There's no coincidence there. Two completely different endpoints. One leading to the eternal and the focus of the spiritual 2020 through Jesus Christ, and the other one with your eyes solely focused on you. That's what God is saying, and that's for every one of us. There's nobody that gets to somehow meander out of this. Every one of us will face condemnation and conviction by either, like I said, our, our, the world of flesh or the devil, the condemnation, and conviction from God. What do you do with it? And this is what Paul was trying to explain to them. You know, this, this idea of for godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation. We today don't want sorrow. If we've been sad for more than five days, we want to microwave joy. 
right? We, microwave ministry, microwave everything, right? I, I've been sad for five days. You know what? It, woe is me, and look, you know, let's just change the page. It's been five days. Today in the DSM, five, the psychology manual, if you're sad or depressed for two weeks, you're clinically diagnosed as what? Depressed, alive from the pit of hell. No, you're not. No, you're not. You're allowing, God's allowing you to have sorrow. And that sorrow is to produce something, something good. Don't run from that. What, what does the Bible say about this? Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 38, please. My prayer is many are going to be set free this morning here. That we realize we're not alone that we struggle with these things. We're not alone. And God has provided comfort because he is the God of all comfort. We got to run to him. Psalm 38, look at verse 17. The author of this says, the author of this psalm, for I am ready to fall and my sorrow is continually before me. And what's the response? For I will declare my iniquity. I will be in anguish over my sin. It actually leads to anguish over sin. Sorrow does that. But my enemies are vigorous and they're strong and those who are, hate me have wrongly multiplied. Those who render, he starts seeing all the things around him. Look at Lord, I'm sorrowing and all these things. The evil people are, you know, it looks like it's going well for them, but for me, I'm struggling. Those who render evil for good, they are, they are my adversaries because I follow what is good. Oh, do not forsake me, O Lord. No longer am I looking to myself, but I put my eyes on the Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me. O Lord, my what? Salvation. Sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. Turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, please. Solomon, the wealthiest man alive, had all the riches on earth, the most wise man from human perspective ever to walk the earth. More wives, more concubines, more everything, more chariots, more horses, fill in the blank. And he ended up calling it all vanity because he couldn't buy or produce his own happiness. Our happiness and joy comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, not for something we can acquire. And yet I've got a generation and we've got a generation of the world today that is trying to work their way to their third and fourth home, their yachts and everything else. And they're miserable. And they're defeated. And you got some pastors in these churches that have wrecked it because they're like, man, get a Porsche. I feel great. Because you're fleecing sheep. God will deal with you. It doesn't help when you got the, uh, they're not pastors. They're not, they're not joining the people and suffering and dying and loving and living with them that way. No, they're charlatans. It's all about them. 
Zechariah warned us in the last days, there would be these shepherds that would come and they would draw away. We're seeing it before our eyes today. That's why healthy sheep reproduce. You all need to be the hands and feet of God going out encouraging other brothers and sisters. Turn to your word. God has not given up on you. And just because you didn't get your Porsche didn't mean God didn't answer your prayer. He did answer your prayer because he didn't respect and give you what really wouldn't have made you happy but would have put you in more debt and destroyed you. He's a good God. I'm glad God doesn't answer all my prayers. I'm glad he says no when they're dumb. I had a lot of dumb prayers. I'm just speaking me, of course, right? Well, look at chapter 7, Ecclesiastes 7. Look at verse 3. Sorrow is better than laughter. God says this. This is the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. This isn't my opinion. God says sorrow is better than laughter. How about that? Talk to most psychologists. You know, psychologists say, oh, no, no, laughter is the key. You need to be, it builds your immune system. Oh, it does. It's good. But sorrow is good too. Sorrow is not bad. We need to stop thinking that because we have sorrow, that somehow we're clinically depressed. No, we're struggling through things in a lost and dying, fallen world. And we need the hope of God and encouragement to go on. There's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with me. We just need more of Jesus. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by sad countenance, the heart is what? It's made better. This is the word of the Lord. He says the heart is made better by sorrow than it is by laughter. Because that's what he compared it to. Have you ever heard that before? Has that been ever spoken in the world of modern science and modern psychology and modern everything today? I don't hear it anywhere. I get it in my Bible. And my Bible writes my mind and restores me and gets me recalibrated. And do you know why that he gives us this guiding principle? So precious. Look in your Bible in Romans chapter 8. Because he wants us to be drawn to something here that every human being goes through when you're saved. Is it worth it? We all ask that question. We, we can pretend here we don't. We do. Let's not play Christian. Let's not play church. We all ask that. And, and if, if you're a young Christian, new Christian, you haven't asked that yet, you will. It's, it's part of walking it out. And you know what? God is so faithful, your answer will always be, absolutely. I would never want anything different. But sometimes we got to go through some difficult times to get to that conclusion. Well, in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, Paul is going to speak, you know, right from his heart. For I consider that the sufferings, I want you to think about sufferings he went through, stoned to death, everything like that. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. This temporal state and all that befalls us here is nothing compared with the glory of God. What glory of God are you talking about? I'm glad you asked. Turn to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. We're stringing some pearls here this morning. Praise you, Jesus. Let's go. To verse 4, Revelation chapter 21, verse 4. This glory that awaits us, because if we don't know this, we're focused on the temporal, the here and now, and we're not looking to the eternal, and everything begins to overwhelm us. But when we begin to work at the, look at the temporal, this is a smidgen, a smidgen. 
And you take even more finite, the days that are up and the days that are down, they become even more small. But we need that spiritual 2020. It's the helmet of salvation, the armor of God. He told us to put on that helmet of what again? Salvation. What did God just, Paul, speak to us? That it was salvation, that this sorrow leads to what? Repentance and salvation. Do you see how it's all connected? God is, look at verse four. When we are in heaven with God, the glory of God, and God will wipe away every tear from your, their eyes. There shall be no more death. Look what he says, nor sorrow. This is the time for sorrow, not in heaven. Our sorrow is here and now because it leads us to repentance. It leads us to right relationship. It leads us to be sensitive and empathetic, you know, empathizing with others, laughing, bearing each other's burdens, loving one another, joining them in those things. Rather than looking down upon somebody like, oh, you're a little believer. You haven't matured yet. You must not have a lot of faith. What? Get away from me. What are you talking about? Where is that in the Bible? No, my Bible tells me that when I'm hurting and broken, that I ought to come and share with my brothers and sisters, and we cry together. We laugh together. We sorrow together. We do all things. This isn't just a building that we walk in. It's the body of Christ that's been knit together for such a time as this that we would be invested in each other's lives. There wouldn't be a, uh, a thing, oh, I got to go to church today. We feel that way some mornings. Notice I said we. Okay. But you know what? I can't think of a better place I'd rather be than when like-minded believers that are going to strengthen one another in the truth of the Bible that will always last and surpass eternity. All of this is going to fade away, but the word of God is going to last into eternity. That's what the Bible teaches. Look what else he says here. He says, there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, no crying. There shall be no more pain. Hallelujah. For the former things have passed away. It's gone. He said that same thing for you and I when we became believers, didn't he? He says, you're a new creation. All things have been what? Made new. All other things have passed away. They've been made new. Inside of you, it's begun. But we haven't received those glorified bodies yet, have we? No, I'm still wearing cheaters, aren't I? Right? Some of us have hearing devices. Some of us still use canes and, and hips, man, hip replacement, all that stuff. Some of our minds are still wrecked, right? Because of things we saw in war or just difficult things that we grew up with that are unspeakable, as Paul would say. It doesn't mean that those things aren't real and we don't struggle with them, but those sorrows draw us back to Christ. And they draw us to areas of reflection. Lord, did I do something to offend? Let me repent. Or glory. Thank you, God, that no matter what's happening here, you have already given me the victory. You have already given me the hope, not the despair not the condemnation, but the conviction that you draw me to you and to your heavenly kingdom. And that's already done. Do you realize that? Revelation, it's done. It's not something God's working out. We know that he's waiting till the fullness of the Gentiles come in. Is it worth waiting if it's one more soul that can come to Christ and not have to go through the great tribulation? 
Yeah, it's worth it. No matter what suffering we're going through, even death. Because death is nothing more than a beautiful passage to my Lord. Because the resurrection awaits me. You know, when we begin to settle these things, it does, it falls off us, man. We start laying it down. And we don't got to pick it back up. It's not for me. It's not for you to pick back up. That isn't your baggage anymore. Well, let's go back to 2 Corinthians here. So they're mourning. They're going through this. This is good. It's leading to repentance. We saw the glory. We see the, you know, the beauty of this. You want to see it in, in Scripture? Think of it in this way. Judas. Was Judas sorry or repentant? He was sorry. How do you know he was sorry? Because what did it lead to? Ultimately, despair. And what did despair produce? Suicide. Our young people are being attacked with lies. They're not, they're so busy texting and social. You want to be social? Go out to eat with somebody. Embrace somebody. Hug somebody. You know, interact with people. Shake their hands. Guys, watch where you put your hands, huh? Ladies, you know what to do if he gets fresh. <laughs> you know what to do. All right, enough said. Well, at the end of the day, this is what he's saying here, not just about the you know what to do, but the observe the very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you. You know, that earnest it's saying, what earnest it produced in you. But that, but that was Judas. That was Judas, and in the, in the, in the, in the, it didn't produce that earnest. No, no, you know what produced an earnest in? Peter. That's, we, we, we talked about Judas. Judas was the condemnation where we can see that he, he was of the world that way, right? The, the, the sorrow from the world produces death. He was sorry, but he wasn't repentant. You go to a prison ministry, many times there's a lot of men in there that are truly repentant. But there are some, when you ask them, Hey, man, you know, are you sorry? You know, whatever. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. What I, why are you sorry? Because I got caught. That's why I'm sorry. Not because I'm actually... No, that's not everybody. I bet you probably it's 50-50, probably or better. I don't know. I don't have a statistic. But my point is a lot of people in a prison that are truly repentant. Truly repentant. You know, they blew it. They had a bad day. They made a mistake. You know, again, nobody's arrived. Nobody's better than anybody else. But... He says that when it's of this conviction, as Paul's writing, it's diligence. It's an earnest, like Peter. Peter blew it. He, he denied Christ. And then what happened? God beautifully demonstrated this so that you and I could see it on the very pages of our Bible. He was repentant. He began to cry in sorrow. And it produced a godly repentance in him. And then after he repented, just so everybody could see it, for you and I today, 2,000 years later, Jesus Christ gets with Peter after his resurrection, after you know he was risen that way, and says, Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. What did, what did Jesus do? He restored, he reconciled Peter to himself to show us exactly what conviction does and exactly what condemnation does. They're not the same camp. When we can step back from our our trial at the moment, and look and say, is this of the Lord? Is this of the devil, the flesh, or the world? When we can do that, then we begin to know how to handle these things. We run to God 
always. And if it's a lie from the enemy, the world of the flesh, we take that thought captive and cast it out in the name of Jesus Christ because it's got nothing to do with us. So we ain't going to hold on to it, right? We're not going to play, you know, ping pong. There's no need to. It produces a dil diligence, an earnest. It produced in you what clearing of yourselves, what indignation and anger, but a righteous way. You know, I had somebody I was counseling. They came in. They said, you know, they were struggling with a little anxiety. They were going through some stuff. And I began to counsel them. And they said, you know, Pastor, I've really been struggling with this. I said, sure, let's talk about it. And I said, how about this? And they said, oh, no, I'm over that. I'm over that uh, part of, you know, there's many aspects of anxiety people can have. And it was another area of anxiety. And I said, oh, no, I just got angry one day. I said, that's enough of that. I said, really? He said, yeah, I just, that's, that's enough of that. I'm done with it. I will not, no. I said, praise the Lord. Amen. Why? Because that sorrow drew him to a point where he was able to come back and said, no. I want righteous indignation for the Lord. I want glory unto God. I'm not going to focus on me. I'm going to praise God through this. And he was able to lay that down. He was struggling with a different area. It doesn't mean, again, we arrive. There's other areas in our lives that we need to give over to God. What fear, and this isn't a fear like a fear of someone, but a reverential fear, right? What vehement desire, this, this desire, it's this audible, verbal, you know, Desire, what zeal, what vindication, victory. In all things, you proved yourself to be clear in this matter, telling the Corinthians that. Therefore, though I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong. See, so I didn't do it for the perpetrator or the one that had done the wrong. I didn't do it for him. He says, I didn't do it for the victim either. Right? Or nor for the sake of him who suffered the wrong. But he says, I did it so that you would know I love you. And more importantly, God loves you. That the care of you in the sight of God might appear to you. That you would know that in those moments, just like that church at Corinth, which had a reputation as, you know, sin city in the church, which is just, I can't process that, how heavy that is. Do you know what I mean? Like a church to be known that way for sexual immorality. To, he says, I didn't write that letter to, to just even individual. He says, I wrote it so that the church as a whole would know God's stance, his righteousness, his love, and you would know that I love you too. Because I'm not telling you what you want to hear. I'm not a respect.